Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. This week's sermon and next week's sermon are about sex. And now that I have your attention, uh, most of you uh, ought to have been informed of that. We sent out a couple of different communications this week, mostly so that parents uh, would have a heads up on that. But if you're visiting this morning and you're wondering, how is it that I came to be here on this Sunday? Uh, I just would say that it's not actually a surprise. It's our custom at NPC to preach through uh, books in sequence. And we've arrived in due course at chapter four of First Thessalonians. And uh, and I'm looking forward uh, both to this week and then to next week's sermon, and I will uh, I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go along. Paul is uh, writing to the Thessalonian Christians uh, with the goal that they would grow in a spiritually healthy direction, uh, and he expresses this goal in the prayer which is found at the end of chapter 3, just prior to the verses which were read for us in verses 11 to 13, uh, where he prays this. And I would suggest uh, that we make this our prayer this morning as well. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Healthy growing Christians uh, will increase and abound in love for those within the church uh, and also for those in the world. There is a, a missional component to Christian maturity as the community matures in its care for itself. Uh, so it matures in its concern uh, and witness to the world around them. And Paul's prayer is secondly, that the Lord would establish the hearts of healthy, growing Christians uh, to be blameless in holiness before God the Father when the King returns. And now, uh, having taught through the first three chapters, he comes to chapters four and five, where he is going to turn to areas of practical living uh, where he wants Christians to be established as blameless. Uh, and he introduces this in verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. In other words, you are walking and I want you to keep walking. You are growing and I want you to keep growing. Uh, and so he is writing to folks who are already Christians, of course, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then in subsequent verses, what he will talk about are things that are of substantial importance to us. He'll talk about brotherly love and genuine friendship in the church. 
He'll talk about Christian aspiration for work. What should we hope for in our vocational lives? He'll uh, speak to the church about a maturing Christian understanding of death of resurrection, of the Lord's return, and how Jesus' both first resurrection and then return give us great hope as we consider the end of life. He'll talk about the respectful uh, esteeming of ministry leaders. He'll talk about how to do Christian life together. These are all on his agenda for chapters 4 and 5. But before he gets to these items, he picks up the topic of sexual conduct of Christians. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's significant that he does so. Just to set the stage a little bit. Thessalonica, a city in Greece, uh, in the first century historians report that sexual sin was lightly condemned by the culture in the first century. Uh, the Greek version of uh, what we might call hookup culture generally assumed that men would seek satisfaction sexually uh, in any way that they could, even outside of marriage. Uh, what was frowned on in the first century world was transgressing someone else's marriage, uh, but sex outside of marriage was tolerated, and in fact, some philosophers advised it. Uh, and uh, even more to the point for these young Christians in this uh, brand new church, some of the, of the popular religions of the day, the Greek religions, incorporated uh, sexual conduct into their worship. And so there would have been an intermingling of sex and worship in a way that would seem foreign to us, but would have been uh, a big question that they would have had. Marriage in the first century was for identifying legitimate children, but was not for covenanted committed companionship. Uh, and if all of that sounds familiar, uh, then when we come to First uh, Thessalonians 4, we come to a world that actually sounds a lot like our world. Uh, and it is a timely passage. Now, it would be easy, but I think it would also just be low-hanging fruit uh, to go on some kind of pastoral rant about the parallel brokenness between the first century and the 21st century. And the reason why I think it would be less helpful is that I am as much in need of God's grace on this topic as anyone. There's really no space for self-righteousness on this topic when it's picked up. Secondly, and hopefully that it is precisely into this kind of cultural moment that the gospel came, that Paul sp uh, wrote in uh, chapter one, that the gospel came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you, these Thessalonians, became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord sounded for, uh, forth, and the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living God. So it's right in this cultural confusion on the topic of human sexuality that God, through the gospel, is at work. Uh, it, it's right in this uh, very personal consideration of conduct that God is saving Thessalonians, that he is bringing real people with real stories, real experiences, real pasts, uh, presumably in some cases real habits, uh, and bringing them from lives of sin and brokenness 
two lives of holiness and wholeness. And they would have had the same kinds of questions as young Christians uh, that we would have today. Who gets to decide about what appropriate sexual conduct is? What does it look like? Why does it matter? What about everybody else? These are the questions that Paul addresses in verses 3 to 8. So let me describe our path forward. This morning, I'll do my best to explain and apply verses 3 to 8. And these verses won't address every question that we have. Uh, there, there is a, a goodness to a Sunday school class format that would allow for dialogue and depth, uh, but we don't have that kind of space right in this moment. So what I'm going to do next week is to take verses 3 to 8 and to apply them a little bit more broadly and to present an outline of, of biblically orthodox sexuality. So uh, you're forewarned for next week as well. Uh, discussions, of course, on the topic in our culture are polarized. Uh, they're not only academic, uh, but they're personal because we are all living through the topic. Uh, and we all have our own stories. We all need to be able to understand and apply Scripture uh, to both ourselves and to the world in which we live on this topic. And we need to be able to do so winsomely. Uh, we need to be able to do so hopefully because, as I've already identified, this is an area of living into which Jesus brings great hope and brings great healing. So here's the outline for this morning. We're going to talk about redeemed sexuality and the authority of God. We'll talk about redeemed sexuality and knowing God. We'll talk thirdly about redeemed sexuality and the community of God's people. Are you, are you up, up for it? Good. All right. Redeemed sexuality and the authority of God. Who gets to decide what is appropriate conduct? Well, perhaps you noticed in the reading that Paul's lesson begins and ends with a high view of God's authority on the subject. Uh, he begins in verse 2 by reminding the Thessalonians, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That God has a will for our sexuality, which is to abstain from immorality. And so he is saying to the Thessalonians and to us that God and not the philosophers of the day and not the cultural influencers of the day, or not our personal inclinations, that, that it is God who has the authority. He begins that way, but he also ends that way. Uh, he highlights to the Thessalonians that these instructions are not his opinions, that, that these instructions are not his considerations. He says that they are through the Lord Jesus, that he grounds his introduction uh, into the Lord's authority. And then at the end of his teaching in verse 8, uh, he confirms God's authority. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he bookends his teaching with statements about God's authority. And I, I'd like to suggest to us first off uh, that God's authority on the topic of human sexuality is good news. It's good news in a confusing cultural moment because in our age, 
there are incalculable numbers of voices on the subject. There are real-world voices, uh, boyfriends, girlfriends. Uh, there are expert voices in academic discipline. There are entertainment voices uh, all across the spectrum of however you consume media uh, about what ought to be considered authoritative. It's good news that there is one voice, God's voice, that speaks with the authority of the designer. That God, the designer, not only designed how sex works, but he knows what it's for and he knows where it thrives. And the designer speaks with the authority of the redeemer. Uh, that he is both. He is creator and he is redeemer. And the positive result is that God speaks with authority about redeemed sexuality. So I'm coining this phrase, redeemed sexuality. If you don't like it, don't blame anybody else for it. I made it up in my study. It's my fault. But let me explain because I think, I think this is foundational. So God creates humans uh, to include our sexuality in Genesis 1 and 2. Sexuality is associated with uh, biology. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in the detailed report of humanity's creation in Genesis 2, creation of male and female, with respect to marriage and sexuality, God says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this one flesh companionship uh, is expressed in all of the different kinds of intimacy within marriage between husband and wife. Now there's more to be said next week. But for our purposes, as we come to 1 Thessalonians 4, I think we need to agree on this, that only Adam and Eve, before their fall into sin, only Adam and Eve experienced human sexuality in an entirely pristine way. That's basic biblical anthropology. Does that make sense? That, that there were only two humans who have ever come to the topic of sexuality untouched by sin. One reality of sin is that sin touches every aspect of who we are. And so none of us come to the discussion of sexuality untouched by sin. Sin's impact on us may be varied. It is you know, unique to our own story. Uh, but how we think about it, our affections with regard to sex, ways that we are tempted, cultural preconceptions about sex, uh, actual experiences uh, outside of the boundary of marriage into which God ordains sex, tragic experiences such as uh, abuse, all kinds of different ways uh, that we come to the topic impacted uh, by living uh, in a sin-impacted world as sin-impacted people who do ourselves commit sin. So no person, not me, not you, not the person who views 
sexuality from as far afield as from a biblical perspective as conceivable. No one comes to the topic neutrally. This is basic Bible anthropology. And, and what it should do for us is it should cultivate humility. Uh, it, it should uh, cause us to be humble versus self-righteous on the topic. Now, there's a lot in here that I wish I had known when I hit adolescence. I don't mean to criticize, uh, but the kinds of discussions uh, that were had with me, not only about my parents, but I don't want to throw them under the bus here because they sometimes visit uh, and they usually listen online just to audit the sermons to uh, see what stories are being told. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, more broadly than just in the home, but they, they were usually uh, twofold discussions. One uh, about mechanics. Where do babies come from? Two, boundaries. And the boundaries were usually expressed in a series of don'ts. Don't sleep with your girlfriend. Don't engage in activities that will put you on the path to sleeping with your girlfriend. Don't engage in sexually explicit media, biology, and boundaries. Not wrong, but not exhaustive. Because what, what I also wish that I had heard was that sin within me and sin around me were also going to impact my, my thought life no matter what I watched. Uh, that I needed to hear that sex itself as part of God's good creative design before sin entered the world uh, is a, a positive thing. And that it's also a focal point where his redeeming power is at work. That, that is also a point where God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we come to faith in Christ, is working redemptively, that he brings redemption into our sexuality. So he has authority to describe, to it, uh, to describe it to us, and he has the power to redeem it for us. Are we okay so far? Secondly, that redeemed sexuality and knowing God creates uh, in Scripture, a from-to dynamic. From sin-impacted to redeemed. From broken to whole. From guilty to forgiven. From potentially shamed to honored to redignified. Let me explain this to us. Let me explain the from part of the dynamic first. The, the from-to dynamic surrounds God's instruction on the topic. So, for example, if you, if you went through, uh, like I did, two years of catechism class, it wasn't because I was a bad student, it was because it was two years long. Uh, part of what we did uh, was, we, you know, we learned the Ten Commandments, and because it was in the Lutheran tradition, you learned, you know, Luther's uh, catechism on the commandments. So you learn the Ten Commandments, and... What you learn when you read the Ten Commandments is that they are given in a redemptive context. So it's easy to come to the Ten Commandments and you think with respect to sexuality, the command, you shall not commit adultery, but it needs to be heard within the setting that, that God is saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
so that he is setting his people free and he's not only setting them, you know, politically free, he's not only setting them, you know, geographically free, he's bringing the gospel in its day to them. He's setting them spiritually free. And he's saying, here's how you live like a free person. Live in this direction. Live in the direction of worshiping the Lord only. Live in the direction of honoring his day. Live in the direction of honoring your parents. And live this way with regard to sexuality. Do not commit adultery. From to. And this from to dynamic shapes the most specific New Testament instructions. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians 6, which we looked at, oh, probably a, a year ago or so when you're studying 1 Corinthians. Paul writes in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And then he goes into other lists of, of sins from there. And what we can do in our contemporary debate about sexuality is we can read verse 9, divorced from verse 11. Verse 11, Paul comes back to the Corinthian Christian. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So you see this from to dynamic, from confusion to clarity. From the chaos of individual autonomy, I'll do what I want with whom I want for however long I want before moving on uh, when I want to, to freedom to live under God's authority. From selfishness to self-giving, from guilt to forgiveness, from shame to honor. You see the dynamic. So here's what I want you to do right now. Because it would be entirely understandable if you are hearing the sermon and applying it to your own story. I want you to do this. I, I want you to apply this from to dynamic to yourself. I don't know all of your stories. You don't know all of my story. But here are a few generic stories from which God redeems people, from using people selfishly, from allowing myself to be used, from uncontrolled, unbattled lust, from uncritical participation in the uh, almost everywhere porn industry, from self-righteous judgment of others, thinking that I'm more put together than them from these things. Paul says, when you come to faith, you are washed, you are sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's good news. You might also need to hear, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The beginning of Romans 8. You might also need to hear the end of Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That, that the gospel bursts forth into this very personal area of our stories with tremendous grace and tremendous forgiveness. I mean, what, what a Savior Jesus must be 
to be able to, to bear all of, the, all of the sin of all of his people. Uh, what a covering he must be in order to cover all of the shame of all of his people so, so that all of his people are not only forgiven, but are, are re-honored, if you will, as we're clothed in Christ. That's what we're saved from. Amen? What are we saved to? Well, this is where we pick up in verse 3. For it is the will of God, your sanctification. Following this statement, Paul gives three that statements, uh, which, dis- which describe the two. In the Greek language, these are uh, that statements, which are like, kind of like bullet points. Uh, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each, of, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one transgress his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So verse 6, which we'll come back to in the next point, uh, that, that, that this is actually a matter of community concern. We'll come back to that. Let's pick up verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. So the word body here is not the common word for body. Uh, the, the common word for body, Paul uses later in 1 Thessalonians 5, and this has led to some uh, debate in the commentaries, but it's probably a euphemism for our most personal biology. Uh, That Paul says that the gospel works in a way uh, that we can be self-controlled even in our most uh, intimate physicality, which is hopeful because it it says to us uh, that, that even the most intimate parts of us are redeemable, are sanctifiable, are honorable, that we're not enslaved to bodily urges, that we're not defined by impulses, nor do we need to denigrate the goodness of these things when they're employed in their proper context. Because Paul is not arguing for a, a non-sexual, asexual existence. Uh, he's rather kind of right-framing it, if you will, to be able to control physical behavior rather than letting it define us is a good and an honorable thing. He's saying to us, I think in many ways, contra to the worldview of our day, that our personhood, body and soul, is more than our sexual desire. It includes it, but it's also more than that. And and you'll need to personalize applications as specifically as you need to, but I'll simply highlight that when God brings Christ to you, and he brings Christ to me, and we respond in faith, along with every other benefit that we get, he restores dignity with respect to sexuality. Now, this might be wildly countercultural, but this dignity is as applicable to single Christians as to married Christians, because he's calling for the same standard for both. Uh, the abstinence from intimacy outside of marriage. 
And he's saying that this honors God's authority, that it respects his creative design, and it also imitates the sexual conduct of the Lord Jesus. So if you want to have a, a fruitful thought this afternoon, you think about that, that the Lord Jesus in his incarnation had a sexual nature because he was in every respect the way that we are. And out of this nature, he practiced abstinence for the sake of his call to be single. So he's demonstrating the dignity of sexuality as God intends for it to be practiced. Well, thirdly and finally, redeem sexuality in the community of God's people. So Lord willing, next week we'll incorporate 1 Thessalonians 4 into a more comprehensive, probably fast-moving outline on, on biblical sexuality. But verses 6 to 8 have a few specific applications for redeemed sexuality in the church community. And both applications, I think, are counter to our culture and possibly counter to our own assumptions. And the first is that God's from-to call for redeemed sexuality is a community concern. And it's assumed in our culture, I think, that sexual relationships are so intensively private that the only concern is between the consent of the parties involved. Verses 6 to 8 challenge that assumption. This is the third bullet point statement that Paul makes, the third that statement. Uh, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, down to verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So, So Paul is saying, contra to the assumptions in the first century, and I think contra to the assumptions in our century, that interpersonal conduct has a community impact. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. And this word wrong... Uh, in the Greek, describes exploiting, defrauding, cheating. And Paul is saying to the Christian community uh, that transgressing marriages within the community defrauds the entire community. Spouses and children are defrauded. Other church members will find trust exploited. Relate, uh, reputationally, the church is diminished before the world. So what would this mean by way of application? Well, I'm not suggesting uh, that every temptation or marriage challenge or detail of transgression needs to be shared publicly in the community. That, that would not be prudent. But here are some invitations. One, I, I invite you and I invite me to tuck this truth away uh, against the cultural catechism that whispers to us uh, with respect to stepping outside of marriage, don't worry about it. It's private. Two, should you find yourself challenged and tempted, this is exactly the right moment for a pastoral conversation. It's exactly the right moment uh, to to set up an appointment and talk to someone who can preach the gospel to you uh, in a confidential conversation. I, I think it is one of the weaknesses 
generally speaking, uh, in the Protestant tradition, that, that we don't do this very much, that, that we think we have to do this alone. Now, you might have a trusted friend that you can reach out to and talk these things about, and I wouldn't diminish that, but, but your trusted friend is not ordination vow obligated to keep things private. So seek out a, a trusted conversation where you can have the gospel applied to your situation. Don't fight the challenge alone. It's a community concern. And then finally, within the community of God's people, this is also to be word-informed. comes back to verse 8, which we already looked at with regard to the emphasis on God's authority. And he highlights the importance of the word in informing us on the topic of sexuality. Here's how, verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, certainly he gives the Holy Spirit to us in the Spirit's sanctifying power. But there is also in Thessalonians a connection between the work of God the Spirit and the work of the Word. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 and 6, Paul equates the preaching of the Word with the Holy Spirit being at work. He builds a strong connection between word and spirit. So, so what does this mean for us? It means that as, as we go through a kind of a, a cultural confusion on the topic of human sexuality, that, that it is not foolish, but rather it is wise to let God's word speak to us on the topic. That, that it is wise to let God's word read us. You know, theologians talk about this, uh, like, like we read God's word, but God's word also reads us. That, that we read God's word to understand, but the word also interprets us. It, it, it shines light into our hearts. It shines light into our experience uh, and into areas where we need to mature, where we need to think more clearly, where we need to grow. It's the opposite of foolish to let God's word inform our understanding of human sexuality. And building a conception of redeemed sexuality on the foundation of God's word is right, healthy, and true. Where the word informs our belief, wisdom happens. Where the word corrects our conduct, restoration and freedom happen. And where the word informs our behaviors, wholeness and integrity result. The, the wisdom from God on this is ancient. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.